anybody there? It seems I'm all alone again. Does anybody care? This planet's empty. I see no signs of life. Please don't tell me that the human race did not survive. There are no people in the future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Hey everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. It is Friday, February 16th, no, 17th. It's 17th, I can't even get my day straight today. Welcome to Raging Chicken's Friday Politics Roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And I'm a little slow to get going this morning. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Don't know what that's about. Don't know what that's about. Try to get up early. Just, you know, all the rain and everything that's happening. Uh, just, oof. Kids are off from school, too, as well. So that was really, you know. But I don't have to get up and make the lunches and kind of get them ready for school. You know, I'm usually up between 5 and 5.30. You know, get all that stuff done. Today, since they're home from school, <laughs> the motivation was out, I guess. Anyways. Well, you can help support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress, or you can become a patron. Help support the show, help support all the work that we're doing. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for the show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time we go live. And if you're one of our podcast listeners, our many podcast listeners, uh, you know, take your time. No matter where you're listening to this, you listen on Podbean, listen in kind of Apple Podcast, or if you're listening to Google Podcast or Stitcher or Spotify, make sure you give us that five-star review. Um, take a minute, give us a five-star review. Uh, if you can kind of give some comments about why you like the show, we'll throw that in there too as well. Every time that you do that, it helps other people be able to find the show. Yep, it is a logarithm, um, and so... There you go. We're playing the wrong rhythm game, um, but appreciate it. Yeah, leave us that five star review and help other people find the show. Find the show. And uh, yes, this is going to be front and center for the next couple of weeks. How important this is. Do not let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Field to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. That's ragingchicken.levelfield.net. On today's show... According to a new survey from the nonpartisan Public Religion Research Institute and the Brookings Institution, more than half of Republicans either adhere to or sympathize with Christian nationalism. The survey also found that half of those who believe in Christian nationalism and 40% of those who sympathize with it uh, would support the idea of an authoritarian leader in order to keep Christian values in society. Yep. In Oklahoma... A judge stripped the lesbian mom's parental rights to her son and handed him over to her sperm sperm donor. Yep. Legal experts are concerned that this case will only exacerbate attacks on marriage equality. The Kentucky Supreme Court ruled to keep a near-total ban on abortion in place while a lower court deliberates on the constitutionality of the law. 
The current Kentucky law only allows abortion to save the life of a pregnant person. No other exceptions. And meanwhile, the U.S. Supreme Court is hearing two cases that have challenged the Biden's student loan forgiveness program. Writing in Vox, Ian Milheiser makes, makes it clear that student loan forgiveness program is explicitly authorized by the 2022 HEROES Act. But, quote, the court's Republican majority is unlikely to care, end quote. And this week's mass shooting at Michigan State University killed three students and critically injured another five. My heart goes out to everybody there and include, uh, you know, uh, several people I know, um, uh, you know, went to school with, things like this. So um, everybody's taking care of it. It's all right out there. I mean, obviously, everyone's not all right. Um, three students were killed, five critically injured. That brings the total mass shootings this year to 71. 71 already. We're not even out of February yet. A little closer to home today, Central Bucks School District has targeted an additional 60 books to consider banning from its libraries. The books targeted for banning are based on a site created by the far-right group. Say it with me, Moms for Liberty. Yes, indeed. And 52 school board directors from 25 Pennsylvania school districts are calling on Central Bucks School District to repeal the recently passed ban on so-called advocacy activities. The group of directors condemned Central Bucks School Board majority for fostering intolerance, discrimination, and targeting LGBTQ students for political purposes. And in some, you know, it's... I'll say concerning news as much as kind of like, you know, ongoing, we're seeing what the impact of this is. Uh, Senator John Fetterman uh, voluntarily checked into Walter Reed Medical Center for treatment of clinical depression. Now, depression is a common uh, is common in uh, stroke survivors. And last week, Fetterman was hospitalized after feeling lightheaded during a Senate retreat. Um, you know, I, I got to say, um, both his, um, both Fetterman himself and his wife, um, Gisela, are just... Uh, doing such a good job, I think, of being transparent about what's going on and calling attention to, um, like, you know, the effects of strokes, strokes on an entire family and the kind of the long-term effects. I mean, it's one thing, you know, for those people, you know, those of us who have not endured, um, you know, a situation in which one of our family members or something has suffered a stroke, um, I think the nation is kind of really learning, um, about these kind of long-term effects and the struggles it can cause. And I think that's that's good to have that kind of public discussion. And I, you know, I can't say how I appreciate enough for, you know, Fetterman and uh, his family to be willing to kind of talk about this openly um, so that everybody, you know, sees what's going on. And at the same time, you know, obviously concern for him um, and kind of wishing the best in recovery. And for more PA Progressive Talk, tune to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcast. Head on over to therixmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, know itunes wherever you get your podcast check it out and if you haven't heard already the signal is a new podcast from the bucks county beacon 
The Signal is hosted by The Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal shines a light on right-wing extremism and the currents running through Bucks County and beyond. And Cyril has guests on who provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions in order to steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. You can check out uh, the first two podcasts that are now dropped at the buckscountybeacon.podbean.com. Um, that will very soon be on every podcasting platform you can imagine um, going through that process, and that's all getting set up. That's fantastic. Uh, last week, uh, the episode two dropped with uh, Morris Cunningham. Uh, we talked more about dark money and influencing um, the schools, um, public schools, and um, some of his research that, he, that he's done. Um, a great uh, discussion. He has a new report out, so do check that out. That's Buck, buckscountybeacon.podbean.com. And attention all you gamers out there, The Game In, that's with two N's. The Game In is a Quaker Town-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops, and kids get discounts with A's. They get A's and report card. They get discounts. How good is that? Pretty cool. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game In. That's with two N's, at the Game In on Twitter. If you got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a special shout-out goes once again to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at @songadayman. That's with two N's, at songadayman on Twitter. Well, we got some good stuff coming up on Out to Coop Live, um, and this past couple weeks have really uh, kind of rocked it. And we had, uh, you know, Alyssa Bowen was on the show this past week, um, and uh, which was fantastic, getting back into the dark money and kind of schooling. Um, that was uh, pretty, you know, pretty awesome. Um, we've been, you know, just plugging along. It's been just a great series of interviews. We've got some great ones coming up. This coming Monday, February 20th, uh, that it's again at 7 p.m. We're going to be talking about the recent decision by Kutztown Area School District to cancel their one book, one school reading of Alan Gratz's New York Times bestselling young adult novel, Two Degrees. They canceled it because the novel grapples with the impacts of climate change. Yes, indeed. I'll talk with Robin Underwood from the group Coffee. That's Kutztown Organized for Educational Excellence. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about what's been happening in Kutztown, you know, because Kutztown School District has seen an influx of right-wing extremism and Paul Martino money. Uh, my understanding is that they've got about last school board election with 15 grand um, got dropped down into that district um, to kind of push everything to the right. So we're going to talk with that. It's Robin Underwood on Monday. And then on the 27th, that's coming up uh, in two weeks, also at 7 p.m., I'm going to talk with Patricia Roberts-Miller. Um, we're going to be talking about her book, Demagoguery and Democracy, and the continued threat of authoritarianism into our democracy. Um, <clears throat> Roberts Miller was formerly a professor of rhetoric and writing and former director of the University Writing Center at the University of Texas in Austin. And her other books include Speaking of Race, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations That Bring Us Together, uh, Rhetoric and Demagoguery, and Fanatical Schemes, Pro-Slavery Rhetoric and the Tragedy of Consensus. Um, I'm really excited to have her on. Um, I'm actually reading uh, one of her books in my classes this semester. Um, and she does just a fantastic job of kind of unpacking um, you know, what's happening, what demagoguery is and how it kind of works and how it functions. And then what, it, what, a, what a critical, say, democratic rhetoric, if you will, um, might look like. That is, what it, would it look like to actually engage um, critical issues in, um, you know, 
sane ways, I guess, in ways that are kind of help democracy. No. Uh, but it's great stuff. Um, so we'll be talking about some of those tactics of demagoguery, and um, that'll be on February 27th, Trisha Roberts Bill. Look, everybody, if we want a progressive future, we need progressive media. That's the way history works. That's, history has always been like this. You need that media, and along with social movements, that's the way it works. Uh, support Cold No Punch's homegrown progressive media today. Becoming a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as 5 bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight, and we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as 5 bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today well everybody welcome welcome i am sorry for the uh for those folks who are tuning in live i'm sorry for the uh slow start this morning uh but as i said at the very top of the show uh, my kids have off today uh it's super rainy this morning and uh despite the multiple alarms that went off this morning i just kind of shut them off and <laughs> like just rolled over and went back to sleep for a little bit um, you know, if anything, I think my body was just yelling out, you know, like, you need this, you need this, you need this. Um, I don't know. It's, a, you know, again, it's so hard to say if this is a, like an experience that everybody's, you know, lots of people are having, or if it's really just me. And I've just talked to a few other people who are feeling the same way. Like, but anecdotally, man, it's like, this week has been a long one. I mean, even my son said this week, man, this has been such a long week. Um, and yeah, I agree. I've been just kind of dragging all week and for no good reason, you know, it's not like, um, it's not like things are any crazier than they usually are. Um, it's not like I was kind of like burning the candle on both ends this week. You know, I, I, you know, was, I worked pretty intensely this week, but, um, don't know. I don't know. So it's the weather, it's the spring coming. It's the fact that, you know, maybe it's the, uh, the sneaking kind of that sense of not quite depression, but, uh, like, I don't know, like, I, I love the snow, okay? And I grew up, you know, in the snow belt, like Utica, New York, you know, I mean, I, we got tons of snow, and they got tons of snow this year. And, you know, we had maybe, I mean, if you could really call it like a, like a, a good snowfall, we had one, maybe, but I mean, I didn't, I shoveled but I didn't need to, <laughs> you know, it's like I could have just let the weather warm up again and for it to go. And, you know, I guess that's, that's been kind of just sitting in the back of my mind, you know, I mean, these are, you know, these are gonna be the impacts of climate change, you know? Um, and, you know, I had a bunch of stuff that, you know, I had originally tagged for today's show that was looking at some of the stuff on climate because there's some new reports that have come out and there's, there's this new little kind of uh, this little drone uh, type sub thing that they've uh, scientists have got working down in, the, in Antarctica to uh, look at the degree of erosion under one of the major glaciers um, in Antarctica. Um, uh, we talked about this in the show a while back. You know, they were finding out that because of the warmings of the ocean, right? The uh, you know these massive kind of ice shelves and glacier shelves are are kind of being eroded kind of underneath, right? So even when we don't see kind of mass melting on the top, although there's that too as well. Um, the, the warm water is kind of undercutting these ice shelves, right? Uh, making them, you know, that much more precarious and or collapse. And so, you know, there's things like that that were going on. There were kind of reports that came out about that, um, which is always, you know, um, cause for concern, certainly. Um, the other one, well, I, you know, I should have just put them in the show now because here I am talking about them. Um, the other one was... Um, 
there was a really, I, I mean, there's a really good report that came out, and I'm just not going to find it right away. But there was a really good report that came out that was, um, oh, here it is. I should have put this one in here because this is an important one, right? This, so there's a new report. This was uh, published in the Washington Post. Um, it's the, uh, what, it was published yesterday, I guess. And the title of the article is Beware a Climate Doom Loop Where Crisis is Harder to Solve, report says. And this was, I think, a really good article and an analysis. Um, I have yet to read the entire report. I've just read the um, um, this really good article in, in the Post um, uh, about the things. This is an article by Leo Sands. And uh, they say they're calling it a doom loop, right, these uh, reporters. So, uh, or not these reporters, these, these scientists. So, uh, let me, these think tanks, I said. So, this is, let me just read this to you because I think this is important context. It says, the self-reinforcing dynamic outlined in a report jointly, jointly published Wednesday by two British think tanks warns of a spiral effect. Governments risk expending so much money and attention on merely coping with the impacts of climate change that they neglect efforts to reduce global emissions, exacerbating the crisis. Quote, we're pointing to a potential situation where the symptom of the climate and ecological crisis, the storms, the potential food crises, and things like this, Start to distract us from the root causes, report author Lori Laybourne, an associate fellow at the Institute for Public Policy Research Think Tank, said in an interview, quote, you get a feedback that starts to run out of control. The report's authors do not believe that climate change has already triggered a global doom loop that is irreversible, but warn that in some places the dynamic could begin to take hold. Right, and they go through stuff, this kind of like economic doom loop and so on. And I, why I think this is important, right, um, it's because the article, and I'll put a link to this in today's show notes too as well, I, can, I really should have from the, from the get-go, but why I think it's important in terms of its approach is it's, um, it's not solely focused on the, uh, the need to cut carbon costs, right? I mean, and, you know, again, they're, they're all on board with that, let's be clear about it. But they're, what they're drawing attention to is our, say, patterns of collective behavior, if you will. And I mean, like, through government action or inaction or so on. And um, kind of following through um, what happens as we have an increasingly um, kind of unpredictable, erratic, and devastating kind of weather cycles that are brought on by climate change. What happens when we have mass flooding. What happens when, you know, we have a kind of a major ice sheet that collapses and we see like, you know, like a one or two foot uh, um, um, uh, sea level rise, right? Um, what happens when, um, you know, food's not being able to be grown in certain parts of the world any longer because it's gotten too hot? Or what happens when certain areas become, um, you know, you have patterns of torrential downpours and long rainy seasons that never existed there before? I mean, this is the, the stuff that we, we've set ourselves up for. Um, Again, I, I use we <laughs> very cautiously there because, of course, we've all taken part in, you know, fossil fuel burning and all this other kind of stuff that's been part of the societies that we've uh, done, especially if you're based here in the U.S. All right, Pennsylvania is a perfect place to kind of do that self-reflection because this is where the first oil well was in this country, right? So we have a long history in this commonwealth um, of its relationship with fossil fuels. Of course, you know, that's true with natural gas and all of everything else. Um, but... What they're focusing on is, okay, when the things like this happen, um, it's, it's not just that it's just an event, but then there's, there's things that happen afterwards, as we all know, right? There, we, there's, there's devastation of, pro, uh, of property, right? People lose their homes. They're kind of displaced for their homes. They have to go someplace, right? Millions of dollars of damage is done, and, uh, you know, you have to kind of 
respond to that, right? Uh, people have insurance, right, um, for their business that gets, you know, flooded out or burned down or kind of wrecked in a major hurricane, right? That insurance kind of pays those fees, right? And so then that's that's money that goes out. And then, then the, the insurance rates go up and people are paying in more money. And so all gets focused on like the, you know, the economic part of it, like where the, the cash flow goes is all going to respond to these, uh, the crises and kind of mitigating it. And, um, but it's all kind of like on our heels. And what the what the report points out is that since these are going to increase, right? You know, the the severe weather is only going to increase if all we're doing is responding to the devastation. Then we're going to not have sufficient amount of resources in order to address the underlying problems, or at the very least, right? It takes the eye off the prize because we're caught in this constant loop of responding to um, the um, you know the results. Um, so it's a, I mean, it's a really good report. I'll probably talk about it a little bit more um, kind of next week on the show because um, um, I want to kind of get into and digest it a little bit. But I, I thought it was, it was, I don't know. I just think it's really important to think along those ways because if we're going to be holding, you know, politicians accountable, we're going to be electing people to office and we, we need like, you know, rapid response at this point. Um, We need to, yes, bring the science and bring the thing, but then we also need to kind of raise the alarm about like what this doom loop. I mean, I like the word doom loop because that's that's what happens. And, you know, they talk in the report about like this food doom loop or the kind of economic doom loop and and how this is all kind of coming at us from climate change. Um, And, you know, it's always so remarkable to me when we're we're talking about something like this, where uh, we're talking about something like climate change, where the solutions are just staring us right in the face. I mean, you know, we're not at a point where we don't know anymore. We're at a point where we know what to do. And everything is about kind of inaction and refusal to act, right? It's all about like, like will at this point, our collective will. And that includes all of us, not just our politicians, but I mean, really, it means all of us, right? Because we can make the demands, right? I mean, we can make the demands, but, um, you know, there is no singular we here. We all we all know that we whether it's in our communities or whether it's in our in our states or whether it's in the nation as a whole or globally, that there's not a singular we, right? This we is fractured in half, you know, not half, but like good portions of the we don't want to act. Right? And we have a kind of, you know, a political system that is designed to kind of uh privilege the um the you know, the big money from corporations, the fossil fuel industry at the expense of all of us. So it's kind of what we, why we do what we do, right? Um, but it's just kind of one of these moments of reflection um, that it just kind of caught me this week, right? So uh, I've been just thinking a lot about that, especially since, you know, I've, I've been really, just like I said, I've been really bummed that we haven't had snow this year. My kids have been really upset, you know, because they love it too. And, you know, it's kind of like a window into the future, if you will, you know, um, anyways. Uh, I don't know if people saw this this week, but there was uh, this new report that came out, um, like like I said, from the Brookings Institution and from the um, uh, from PRRI, um, which is the Public Religion Research Institute. And they found they it was actually kind of again, it's a good discussion, but you know they decided to do this report or do this survey, right? You know, kind of because it began, you know. One of the researchers says uh, says this. Uh, this is Robert Jones. He's the president of the um, uh, PRRI. 
It says, it became clear to us this term Christian nationalism was being used really across the political spectrum, he said, not just on the right, but on the left, and that it was being written about more by the media. And of course, it's being used differently in those, by those groups. Like for those folks on the right, obviously they're kind of some of them are embracing them. Um, they cite the example of Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, who basically explicitly said that, you know, we should be Christian nationalists, that she's a Christian nationalist. You know, um, this was during an interview at the Turning Point USA last August. Uh, here's the exact quote, quote, we need to be a party of nationalism, she said. I am a Christian and I say it, I, I say it proudly, we should be Christian nationalists, right? So that's Marjorie Taylor Greene. And so that's the kind of thing that, um, these researchers basically said, you know, we should begin tracking this to kind of see what kind of impact it is. Because it's one thing for those folks like us, you know, to be calling attention to this. Um, it's a whole other thing to really try to understand what the what the actual impact is, right? Because um, you know as well as I do, once you start ta- telling people about, you know, these these Christian nationalists and trying to draw attention to them, you know, it sounds kind of like, you know, far-fetched to people who aren't paying attention. It sounds like something that's kind of extreme. So this group basically started to say, okay, let's get some actual hard data on this. And so, and this is, you know, um, from this piece in NPR on this, it said researchers found that more than half of Republicans believe the country should be strictly a Christian nation. They either adhere to the um, ideals of Christian nationalism that was 21% or sympathize with those views 33%. Right? That's really significant, right? Then furthermore, this is where it gets even, you know, it kind of helps fill out some of the context, right? Put in context what we've been seeing in our communities, what we've been seeing in our nation. And it says, while majority of Republicans currently either adhere to or sympathize with Christian nationalism, the survey found that this remains a minority opinion nationwide, which is good, right? So then we also know that um, they, they're having an outsized influence on our politics, but they still do not represent, excuse me, um, a majority opinion in the United States. So we're talking about a faction, right? So you're talking about, um, you know, you have about 29%, right, of Americans either adhere to Christian nationalism or uh, sympathize with those views. Then it gets even more, say, disturbing in this part where it says, in fact, according to the survey, half of Christian nationalist adherents and nearly f- uh, 40% of 4 in 10 sympathizers said they support the idea of an authoritarian leader in order to keep Christian values in society. Quote, this is again from one of the researchers, um, at, at its root, there are some deeply anti-democratic impulses here, Dumas said. Quote, so... Um, to see that more than half of one political party is committed to Christian nationalism, I think it explains a lot in terms of our ability to achieve much bipartisan agreement. Um, and of course, that this all correlates to um, um, these all correlates to you know anti-blackness, anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic views, anti-Muslim views, and patriarchal views, right? So all of these things line up. So we you know we see the influence of this. The other thing that's important to point out is you know movements like this, these extremist movements. Um, you know, some people might take comfort in the fact that they only represent a minority of views out there. And, you know, we should take some comfort in that to, so that we're not, you know, assuming that everyone that's kind of like down the street from us is a Christian nationalist. But like nearly 30% of uh, the population, that's a significant faction. I mean, that is gets close to hitting the numbers of Trump supporters, right, of the diehard Trump supporters. And we know that they can have a disproportionate impact upon our politics, right? You know, one of the things that that's in always, you know, always in the back of my mind is, is not so much just, well, what's the, what's the actual numbers? That's important, of course. But um, 
who's got the motivation, who's got the initiative, and who's got the energy to actually enact their stuff, right? And as we've been seeing on our school boards, as we've been seeing in our national politics, um, this faction um, has the power, right? This faction has now rooted itself in one of the major political parties, right? One thing I'll take issue with in terms of how NPR frames that is, or even one, one of the researchers frames that is like, you know, well, this explains a lot in our ability to kind of achieve much bipartisan agreement. Is like, you know, I find it, you know, a, 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 always like a toxic framing, um, or I shouldn't say toxic framing, a significantly limiting framing um, when we uh, look at everything in terms of bipartisanship, right? Or partisan, is it partisan or is it bipartisan? Because it frames everything in terms of parties, right? And again, yes, that might be interesting for uh, when we're talking about Democratic and Republican um, parties, but you know, in, in in localities and in states, right, they may find expression through those parties, right? But they're not; they don't begin in those parties, right? They've been welcomed into those parties, but they've built up power structures in the parties, but. The money is rooted in the grassroots organizing around this, right? And yes, you know, you can take issue with me saying it's grassroots because it's funded by these billionaires, right? As we talked about with Lisa Bowen last week, as we're going to talk about again um, this coming Monday with Robin Underwood, um, as we've been talking about in this show for quite some time, right? Yes, that it's definitely funded by these this billionaire dark money um, kind of, you know, dark money and not so dark money kind of funders of these really toxic extremist organizations. Right? We've been talking about Jeffrey Yass. We've been talking about Paul Martino. You know, we've been talking about the ways that this has kind of really warped our politics. But at the same time, there's organizing on the ground, right, where that money is going and investing in organizing, not just in getting candidates elected, right, but in building power at the base, Right. Um, and that is something that we we know. Right. This is one of our hobby horses on this show is that is one of the things that we have not seen. Right. Um, on on the left. Right. So while there's lots of organizing going around. Right. And there's a political party. Right. That we've seen some inroads. You know, the Democratic Party has been some inroads on more progressive voices through like the squad and kind of young folks that are getting elected. Uh, Maxwell Frost has been in the news. He's been doing just kind of amazing work on some of the committee hearings. Right. So we're seeing some of those inroads, but there's not this kind of integrated structure like there is on the right. A matter of fact, we find that, you know, most kind of local organizations that are, uh, are, are trying to build power, trying to organize around stuff are the ones who are struggling for money the most, right? Money and resources um, to, to do that. While as, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see folks from, you know, kind of the, you know, center to the left um, invest lots of money in um, um, political candidates during election times um, or into, um, you know, charity organizations, um, the money that gets invested in building infrastructure and building organization at the ground level is not so much. And, you know, we talked about the um, 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 Hillsdale College, right, and some of the things that they did in terms of building, you know, like a media infrastructure where they actually have studios that kind of right-wing podcasters and stuff can use in Washington, D.C., you know, state-of-the-art studios, and, and then they use their um, networks of influence in order to kind of get those, you know, kind of random podcasters access to um, kind of power brokers in DC, right? So that's, you know, how that stuff works. But even I think about, um, you know, you, you talk to folks in the nonprofit sector, and I said, one of the things that's always frustrating um, for these people working in, say, progressive circles is that, um, you know, people will um, give their money um, 
in, in, you know, for a, for a tax write-off um, for a service that is going to be um, uh, delivered, right? So, for example, um, Penridge Fish, right, in our area is uh, one's like a, it's a food pantry, and they do a lot of, a lot of things to, uh, to um, help out folks um, that um, may be going hungry, right, um, need clothing, need resources, right, everything that comes with, say, poverty or kind of the being working poor country and it's just going to run right down right down the street right so people will give money to an organization like that right um because it's responding to a need right and so they can make sure you get those people food make sure you get those people um thing and so that money goes to right doing that and again we have to have those things right there's no doubt about it but the the the, the next step in that right it has to do with okay what if you had a group of folks that were on the left that were investing not just in money to get food for people who need it, but actually were buying buildings, right, that could house a collection of organizations like that so that that organization did not have to pay rent, right? So that if, um, you, know, you know, people with money on the left, right, center to the left, right, were investing in helping build that infrastructure, Right, that relieves the pressure of you know making daily bills, right, for power and rent and things like this. Then you could an organization like Penridge Fish could actually probably expand the work that they're already doing. Right, and that is true across the nonprofit sector. Right, you know, I, I was thinking about um, there's this. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna probably get the name of it wrong. I want to say it's 826. Um, yeah, 820, I got it right, 826 Valencia, right? This has always been a really cool model for me. Um, 826 Valencia is, uh, it's a nonprofit organization that works with under-resourced students ages six to 18 um, with their creative and expository writing skills to help teachers inspire their students, right? So it's like they um, they wanted to, this is, you know, want to just work with um, students and help with kind of literacy skills, right? And this is, you know, based out in California, but they now have um, like, chapters across the um across the country so there's one you know one day the, the cool thing about it right is that what they do i want to see if i can get this bah, bah, bah. i'm not gonna be able to find it right away uh, i wasn't planning talking about this this is how it always goes right <laughs> so <laughs> it's crazy um so so one of the things that they do is they have like a storefront right so they have a building, right, and it's a and it's a storefront, and so they at at the front of the um, uh, at the fr at the front of it there is um, hold on a second. At the in the front they have like a store, right, and at that store, um, the store sells you know kind of clothing and things like this, right, um, at a reduced rate. Um, they have, and then they started kind of look out. So the eight twenty six Valencia has kind of the storefront. Um, the storefront has the um, uh, pirate supply store, right? So up front, there's like pirate supplies, right? All of everything you'd want it want for, like for pirates, right? And it's a store you can actually buy things, right? And you have volunteers that can come work there, and that's one of the ways that kind of help raise money, right? And then in the back, right, um, they have these all, the major part of the, what's happening in the building. In the back, they have, you know. Um, like their literacy stations, right? Where, you know, they're working with kids after school, they're helping with literacy stuff and so on. It's pretty amazing. Uh, these kind of chapters began, they started, you know, open these up across the, um, like across the country so that, you know, you have like a superhero supply store and you have a robot supply store and that kind of stuff. 
Um, and then in the back, you've got, you know, um, say literacy station, which is really kind of a cool idea. And that always made me think is like, yeah, you know, imagine if you had, you know, um, if that you had, you know, people that had the kind of the means in the kind of center to the left, right, that would invest in kind of, you know, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to invest in building the infrastructure so that you can operate this kind of stuff without, um, you know, having to pay all that overhead, right? It's a really good model. Um, and then, um, and then you could do something like as a way to continue to raising, um, like to raising money to um, have this kind of multi use property where you have, you know, your kind of nonprofits, nonprofit area, um, where you're kind of doing this, this kind of work, but maybe like a store or a resource area, something like this kind of in front that helps kind of, you know, bring it out in the community, right? Um, just kind of really cool stuff. Um, anyways, getting way off the topic for today. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I just think about that kind of building out that infrastructure is kind of, I guess, what, I'm, what got me off on this is, you know, seeing what's happening with this, the rootedness of this Christian nationalism um, that's kind of, you know, being, you know, perpetrated or being kind of spread through um, our communities, through churches as institutions, right? Um, through, uh, you know, these five, you know, these 501c3 um, organizations that like, like Moms for Liberty um, that are kind of have mass amounts of funds that are going in that. Um, and those organizations who like why that matters, why they're able to do that, those organizations don't need to make right um, rent, right? Because they've got everyone just covering all the kind of base up costs. So all their money goes to actually the organizing. All their money goes to those uh, the work that they're doing on the ground, um, you know, with their crazy ideas. So something to think about, I guess, and chew on. I've been thinking a lot about that stuff lately, I guess, is what's on my mind. Um, and so just as an example, and I, you know, I, I hate to, well, no, I don't hate to do this, but I mean, this is like the concrete results of uh, what we see in that survey, right? So, you know, I, I don't know if people saw this, um, but in Oklahoma, um, this, this blew my mind, right? So an Oklahoma judge, um, this is kind of from the 19th, um, and an Oklahoma judge just transferred a lesbian mom's parental rights to her son's sperm donor, Right. And the ruling incites the state's Parentage Act could have substantial implications for mar marriage equality and LGBTQ parental rights nationwide, legal experts warn, right? So basically, I mean, if you haven't seen the story, um, the, 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 the specifics of it are like this. It's like there's, um, um, there's a, uh, there was a lesbian couple who um, um, kind of, well, here, let me just read you for, just so I can get all the details right. So Chris Williams is a lesbian, and that means that she won't be seeing her son anytime soon. That is the official ruling of Oklahoma court. On Monday, Oklahoma County's uh, District Judge Lynn McGuire ruled that Williams had failed to adopt her son and had forfeited her parenting, uh, uh, parenting rights to his sperm donor, um, their sperm donor, the kid's sperm donor. Uh, advocates say Williams' case may test the bounds of equal marriage laws in Oklahoma and beyond. According to um, to Williams, she and her ex-partner Rebecca Wilson planned to have their son, planned to have their son, and found a sperm donor Harlan Vaughn on a paternity website together. Um, the two married while Wilson was pregnant. Um, and then, in most states, married couples are presumed parents of um, children born within those unions. And Wilson said that she um, Williams said that she and Wilson raised the kid for two years, but the couple split up bitterly in 2021. And Wilson moved in with Vaughn, um, taking her son with her. Um, they argued that Williams was not uh, Williams was not the kid's mom, right? 
So the idea there is that the assumption is the legal assumption is that if you were in a kind of in um, um, a heterosexual couple and you're kind of you get married, right, and you have a kid inside that um, inside that marriage, that you are the presumed parents, right? That that's kind of automatic. We wouldn't think anything otherwise. But in this case, um, because you know they were married and she had a kid, right, and it was through a sperm donor, right. They found that well, okay, yes, you were married and you had a kid when you were married, um, but um, because you are a same-sex couple, we're, we're not going to make the same presumptions. We're not going to assume that, that that that's yours because you didn't adopt that kid. And like, I'm sure they're looking at each other like, "What do you mean adopt? Why would we adopt the kid? The kid is it's our kid, <laughs> right? And she gave birth to that kid, right?" So if you just kind of, you know, you put it side by side, heterosexual couple that used a sperm donor and then split up after the kid was two years old, right? No one is even going to raise, you know, raise a question about whether or not um, if the kid is living with the mom at that point, there's nobody's going to raise a question about whether or not that kid is actually hers. Now, of course it's hers, right? Even if it was with a sperm donor and a heterosexual couple. So what's at stake here is the status of uh, same-sex marriage, right? And this court um, is basically, you know, again, it goes one step, one step further that it's not, not only um, are they saying that she's not the mom, right? And, but that the sperm donor has more rights than she does to the kid that she birthed, right? <laughs> right? And there's no indication in any of the story that, like, the you know the guy who's the sperm donor was uh, was demanding like to take it over, right? I mean, it's not even that, right? Not that that should even matter. Okay, let's be clear about that. But it's like not even that kind of situation, right? So this is where this is stepped in. So this has gotten really this has gotten really messy, and you know, we always track this um, on the show. You look for cases like like this. Why? Um, yes, you could say, oh, it's Oklahoma. But, you know, we have to learn from the, the practices of the past that you have, because of that net grassroots network, well-organized grassroots network that we talked about that is well-funded from the top, is that they are constantly looking for test cases, right? And pushing the limits of, and pushing the boundaries of what is considered, you know, kind of legitimate, what is considered normal, uh, what's considered legal, and looking for cases like this to push it through the courts. Their goal is ultimately to change national law, right? So they start at these local, the local levels, and you know, this is the perfect case where you know if you bring a lawsuit in a case like this, guess what? You're not going to have to pay your legal bills because you've got these billionaire funders that are going to pay them for you. Right. These lawyers are going to make out well. Right. I mean, you know what, like Alyssa Bowen and I talked about on the on the show this past Monday is that, you know, always like right around the corner from any of these, you know, um, dark money organizations or kind of, um, you know, extremist funded organizations that are funded by these billionaires and millionaires, whatever. Um, right around that corner, there's always grift. Right. It's always a grift. And like these lawyers They've got like paychecks coming out their ears, right? Because all they've got to do is argue these most extreme cases. And as long as they're kind of like, you know, part of the family, that they're good, right? They're going to make out really, really well for themselves, right? And, you know, this is one of these cases to watch and to see where this what goes on from there. Then, right, not that far away, 
We've got a Kentucky Supreme Court that just ruled to keep a near total ban on abortion in place while a lower court deliberates its constitutionality of the law. Right. So Kentucky was one of these states that had one of these trigger laws. Right. So that immediately as soon as uh, Roe v. Wade uh, would be ruled unconstitutional. Right. Then the previous law would snap back into place. Right. And now what would snap back into place is a near total ban. The only conditions under which um, that an abortion would be allowed is it's to save the life of the pregnant person. That's it. So rape, incest, nope, none of that stuff. Right? Only when um, it's a choice between two lives. And, you know, but the pressure against would be against that. When, it, when is it, when is, when is she really at risk, right? That's crazy. So now, so, you know, this ban went into place. Um, a lower court um, did not kind of, you know, deliberate the Constitution. It kind of went up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, yeah, okay, well, no, we need to figure out the, Constitution, uh, the constitutionality of this law. But while you're figuring it out, keep the ban. So real women, real pregnant people, right, who are in the world right now are living under an abortion ban. Those rights have been completely stripped away from them. And who knows how long it's going to be before they're able to determine the constitutionality of this. In the meantime, you know, the forced birthers win. Right? The control over women's bodies, over pregnant people's bodies, wins. And it's like one step. I mean, these, these people are so good at doing this, right? They're, they're willing to take like, you know, keep on taking small bites out of the apple until all you got left is the core, right? Well, just a bite. Or it happened over there, right? But in the meantime, real people get hurt. I mean, this is kind of like, you know, this is the model of any kind of authoritarian change, right? It's always this, um, I had a student in one of my classes uh, talk about this this week, and the student said that, you know, it's like that analogy of like the, fro- you know, the, the frog, Right, the frog's in the boiling water. Right, the frog doesn't jump out if you uh, if you throw it into the uh, the boiling water immediately. Boom, tries to get out. But if you slowly raise the temperature to a boil, well, they'll sit right there. That's what that's the mentality these people have. Right, they say, okay, we'll just kind of we'll keep on chipping away at it, and under the expectation that the the, that the rest of us and our mainstream media and all this other kind of stuff is just going to say, well, okay, this is an exception. And this is just a small case of that's actually happening over there. And, oh, and, and worry, they might worry about the national implications of this, but they're not, you know, we don't do that. And I think, you know, part of it is just kind of a, a, like, I don't want to say natural, but like, I was thinking like, you know, it's a natural way. I'll just say that I'll put it in quotation marks. I like got a natural way that, I think, you know, people respond to, you know, like major issues like this when, you know, it hasn't been embedded in our culture that we can actually stop it, right? You know, I think like, you know, despair and discouragement is so kind of embedded, you know, the, the belief that, you know, this is what happens 40 years with neoliberalism, right? You know, 40 years with the, you know, words of Margaret Thatcher echoing in the back of all our heads, like there's nothing we can do. There is no alternative, right? That notion of despair, and I've talked about this in the show before too, is like, you know, years ago, right? I wrote about this with Rachel Reedner in our book, Democracies to Come. And we talked about, 
you know, in one of our chapters, we were focused on this question of despair and the way that that despair is this kind of placeholder, right? This emotional placeholder that kind of cuts off our ability to our, our ability or our, our our vision to be able to address the underlying problem. It goes back to that kind of like doom loop. We don't see a way that we can be effective, right? Or we, you know, it's 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 so overwhelming, right? And again, I, this is not to belittle, or this is not to I'm not belittle, but this is not to. Um, this is phrase it a different way. We have to recognize that there are always people that are fighting, right? There's always people that are organizing. Right. I'm not talking about saying that nobody's doing anything. That's not what I'm saying. Right? Lots of people are doing things. Right. I'm talking about as a culture. Right. You know, imagine if what our what we did in our educational system was to train people about how to hold politicians accountable, about how to um, thwart the um, the power of corporations to um, to warp our laws, how to, uh, you know, everything that we would need that we're trying to do on the fly in our communities. Imagine if our schools were set up to train us in that, um, to never allow the concentration of power and money and economic power and money over our lives to really truly root a democratic culture, right? Yes, that's a thought experiment. But I mean, just sitting out there as a way of, you know, giving us like an alternative to see, right? If we were, that's what I mean, but if we were trained in that way, if we were brought up with that kind of way, you know, and again, yes, some of us were brought up in those ways that you could do something. But a lot of us, you know, especially, you know, you have a lot of folks that are growing up today, they're, they're kind of, say, remaking the wheel in many ways, in, in very powerful ways, you know, like young folks organizing around climate, young folks that are organizing against kind of, uh, you know, uh, racism and white supremacy. I mean, um, you know, I mean, there's great, great work that's going on out there. Um but you know, it's in this kind of these voluntary associations as we as we always do. So we're getting to see this. So and, I, and so I say all that is you know let's put in context. We say why Christian nationalism, why that kind of that survey becomes important, is because it's actually been imbued with you know, or it's been kind of embedded in institutions in our communities, right, uh, through a vast network, right. These folks have been doing this now for forty years, and it's happening at a time. When, you know, after 40 years of neoliberalism, that tells us, look, there's nothing else we can do. You know, the society as it exists today, capitalism, free market capitalism is all we've got. Right. So, you, can, you know, there's no alternative. Right. We've been sucking that air for a long time. So, anyways. Um, and other, I know, fairly big news is that, you know, again, we know that uh, the Biden administration has passed uh, a student loan forgiveness of up to... Um, uh, up to $20,000, actually, um, depending on um, what kind of loans you have, but $10,000 and then $20,000 in there. And of course, almost immediately, um, I, I, all these, everyone who had, has student loan debt, like cheered, right? Um, it did kind of like a cheer, like a short cheer, right? Because you're like, yeah, oh my God, $10,000 taken off my student loan. That is freaking amazing. At the same time, yes, but I still have another $40,000 to go. You know, <laughs> like, So it's like, okay, this is great, but can't you just get rid of it all? You're just showing us that you get rid of it. Whatever, we'll put that aside for a second. Um, nonetheless, this was a really, really important um, move by the Biden administration. Because basically what it does is it shows all of us, right? It shows everybody that the federal government can do this, right? That... The student loan debt that any of you who have student loan debt right now or any of you whose kids have student loan debt right now or friends who have student loan debt right now, you know, the reason why you have all that student debt is by choice, 
right? That our collective government has decided that you should have that debt because they have another choice is to wipe it clean, <laughs> right? Of course, they have an even a better choice is to kind of like get rid of all this freaking, you know, private loan scandal stuff and just kind of uh, give us free higher education, right? I mean, that would be the that would be the direction to go. But you know, at the very least, if you wanted to kind of really have a major impact right now, you just wipe the slate clean, right? You wipe the slate clean right now. They have the power to do this. They showed us they can do this, and yet, um, because you know, people on the right completely understand that. That if people, if the rest of us begin to realize that, wait a minute, you're telling me that I don't need to have this debt? They might want that, right? They might want a situation where they don't have that debt, right? So almost immediately, right, um, you know, you've got these right-wing folks who kind of got in to kind of challenge the constitutionality of, uh, of the student loan forgiveness program. Writing in Vox, Ian Milheiser does great work on the Supreme Court, legal analysis and all this stuff. Um, he writes, the legal issues are straightforward. A federal law known as the HEROES Act explicitly authorizes the program that Biden announced in the summer of 2022 as the COVID-19 pandemic persisted. Under that program, most borrowers who earn less than $125,000 a year during the pandemic will receive $10,000 in student loan forgiveness. Borrowers who receive Pell Grants, a program that serves low-income students, may have up to $20,000 in debt forgiven, right? So there it is. There's a law that was passed, right? It's not just Biden saying, let's do this. It was saying they actually got a law passed that explicitly authorizes the um, um, Biden to do this, right? So there you have it. And yet, and I'm going to read a little bit more. And yet, while this program is clearly authorized by a federal law permitting the Secretary of Education to, quote, waive or modify many student loan obligations, quote, as the Secretary deems necessary in connection with the war or other military operation or national emergency, it is unlikely to survive contact with Supreme Court dominated by Republican appointees, right? The trick there was, right, that act, right, um, could was under when you're under a national emergency, right? We were in a COVID-19 emergency. That's what allowed the Biden administration to do this. Okay. Um, now, there's other arguments about, well, he could just do this anyways. He didn't need this um, to happen, but Biden administration is probably not going to touch that. But anyways, so now the court, the Supreme Court, is going to hear two cases that are going to challenging the loan forgiveness program. One is called Biden versus Nebraska, and the other one is Department of Education versus Brown. Right? Kind of interesting. Brown versus Board of Education. Now, here you got Department of Education versus Brown. The reason why at least one of these lawsuits is likely to end badly for student borrowers is something known as the major questions doctrine, a legal, legal doctrine that was largely invented by Republicans on the federal judiciary and which has no grounding in either constitutional text or in the text of any statute. Right? In theory, the major questions doctrine provides that when a federal agency takes an action of, quote, vast economic and political significance, unquote, it must be authorized to do so by a federal law that very clearly gives the agency the power to do so. Even under this doctrine, however, there is a strong argument that the Biden Student Loan Forgiveness Program is lawful because the HEROES Act speaks in clear and expansive terms about the Education Secretary's power to waive or modify student loan obligations. Right? So that's the setup. Right. However, Bill Heiser goes on, you know, basically to say that, look, this is uh, um, this is, you know, the Supreme Court has been using this uh, uh, major questions doctrine as a way to just kind of like ignore law and to do what it wants to do. Right. So that's kind of kind of where we're at. So that's why Milheiser is basically saying, look, 
Um, you know, the way he puts it is this. He says, Supreme Court's Republican majority could nevertheless use its get-out-of-text-free card, right? That's the get-out-of-text-free uh, to strike down any debt relief program anyways, right? That's because even though the HEROES Act does this, all the court's going to have to do is basically said, um, um, all the courts have to do is say, well, no, this is a major questions doctrine, so we really can't uh, do this. Um now, Milheiser says, look, there's a chance that the court will dismiss the case out of hand because neither of the parties who are bringing the lawsuits have standing, right? Because they're not people who are directly negatively impacted by this, right? So the plaintiff must show that they were injured in some way by the policy. It's unclear how anyone is injured if someone else has their debt reduced, right? So it's not like, it's not like somebody who's basically saying, um, wait, my debt is being taken away and that hurts me. It's not even like that. It's like saying, no, somebody else's debt is being taken away and I'm mad and that hurts my foo-foos, I guess. Right. So, you know, we'll see where that goes. We'll see where that goes. But, you know, if you're looking for yet another reason why the Supreme Court is actively working to undermine any kind of legitimacy it has left, um, this is going to be one of them. And, you know, uh, you know, I, and again, I'm not one to say like, oh, when this bad things happen, that there's going to be repercussions so that maybe we can take, you know, take solace in the fact that, OK, you know, people would be mad and they're going to be there's a lot of really mad student loan borrowers who are going to be mad at the Supreme Court, and that's going to change things. Well, these people are appointed for life, right? The Democratic Party seems completely unwilling to actually pack the court in order to kind of like, you know, change the direction of this court. So, okay, you can be mad, and maybe we're going to kind of, I don't know, elect some more Democrats down the road, but that's not going to change the fact that this $10,000 or $20,000 that was potentially removed from people's debt is now going to kind of remain, if, if that's what they decide to do. So we shall see. We shall see. Um, and, you know, the other part of it, too, as well, like where I was talking about with, um, you know, this re this Republican or this right-wing legal infrastructure, is they're always looking for cases to bring to the Supreme Court. It's like they're already looking for additional cases that will get around that standing question, right? So they're looking for, okay, how do I convince somebody out there who might be theoretically harmed by this, right, have a better kind of claim to standing, um, how might we kind of encourage them to bring a lawsuit so that we can kind of have another one come up the pike? And I'm not, I, don't, I couldn't tell you one way or another, um, but I know that they are, um, they're considering this. Milheiser even addresses this as articles. He says, quote, there is a chance that this court will dismiss the case because none of these parties have standing to bring the lawsuits, as I was saying. That said, if these two cases are dismissed for lack of standing, that will likely only delay a showdown over student loan forgiveness program. Eventually, the program's opponents are likely to find some institution, perhaps a company that is paid to service student loans, that will be hurt financially by this program and will be willing to file a lawsuit. Right. So, in other words, looking at maybe with some of the banks that will somehow that are somehow benefiting from all your debt. Yep. Maybe we can convince some one of them, even if it's a small borrower or something like this, that we can convince them that um, that uh, to bring a lawsuit. So we shall see. Um, and in really devastating news this week, of course, um, you know, we saw another mass shooting this weekend at a university. This is at Michigan State University where we saw three students killed and another uh, five injured, critically injured. Um, that, um, you know, this brings the number of total mass shootings to 71 now. That means, you know, um, basically just about... Just about as many shootings as there are days in the year so far. Um, I know, of, of, like last week, uh, kind of there was numbers coming out to say there were sixty-seven mass shootings, and at that point, there were as there were uh, 
more mass shootings than there were days in the year. Um, I don't, I don't believe that's still the case. You might be like under by like one or something like that, but it's just, it's just amazing. And what we're seeing here too, as well, you look at some of the mass shootings that have taken place um, over this past week, you know, you had, obviously we saw these instances where you have these, you know, these mass shooters that were infected by um, kind of right-wing ideology, white supremacy and th- and so on like this, that were taking up their AR-15s and shooting up schools and all this other stuff or these conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff. We saw all that kind of happening, right? Um, some of the mass shootings this year, especially the ones that took place in California, right, were in kind of Chinese communities, they were in immigrant communities and were committed by kind of uh, kind of other immigrants or other kind of um, Chinese Americans or, or like this, um, where we saw the case uh, kind of mass shootings where we saw, you know, you have an African-American as the shooter kind of thing, is that what that draws attention to, right, is what, you know, like, you know, moms demand action, for example, you know, um, have been, uh, you know, you know, the anti-gun crew have been saying for as long as I can remember. It's it's the guns, stupid. Right? I mean, all these other factors, right? You know, kind of right-wing extremism, conspiracy theories, right? Um, mental illness, all this other kinds of stuff, right? Um, contributes to or kind of can be the pathway for somebody to go and kill somebody. I mean, we saw like a six-year-old, right? Shooter, shoot, shoot, his teacher, Right, bring a gun into school, shoot his teacher. There was another one. I just saw this the other day. There was another six-year-old in Pennsylvania, right, whose, I think, mother was arrested or something like this because the kid, right, little girl, six years old again, I think it was six years old, six-year-old brought a gun to school, right? And we could argue all we want. Well, the parents should have had it locked up. Yes, all that kind of stuff is true. But if the, if the easy access to guns wasn't there to begin with, this would be a moot point. Would it completely eliminate every instance of mass shooting and all that? Of course not. It would just make it substantially more difficult for them to happen. That's the goal of legislation. That's the goal of regulation. I don't know about you, but I don't live in some kind of utopian society where I believe that everybody is, you know, if you have this pass this one law, then suddenly everything's going to be hunky-dory and everything smell like roses. No. The goal is to do better than we are now, <laughs> Right? Imagine, imagine if you, you know, and you could, you, you could already hear like, you know, the, the, the gun fanatics, right? You know, the, the, the kind of, you can already hear the gun fanatics out there basically saying things like, you know, it, well, if you have a mass shooting, right? Say you ban assault rifles and you have a mass shooting, right? Then they're going to say, see, we told you it didn't work. That's how, I mean, that's how easy it is for them. But meanwhile, if we step back just for a second, right? If banning easy access to these weapons... Right. And, and kind of removing weapons from people who are who have de- a demonstrated history of kind of mental illness where they could kind of harm themselves or others. If we could reduce the numbers of mass shootings from, I don't know, 71 to 15. Is that still a problem? Those 15 mass shootings? Absolutely. But guess what? There's a lot more people alive. <laughs> right. And is is that not the goal? This is what just, it just blows my mind about this discussion over and over and over again, because the arguments take place as if we, we're going to live in kind of like you know oh well this you, you there's still going to be bad people of course there are duh nobody's arguing there's not going to be bad people. Matter of fact, we're arguing something different. We're arguing that there are bad people, 
<laughs> right? And there are people that have like significant, like, you know, kind of mental illness and they're not going away. Therefore, let's not make it easier for them to use things to kill other people. How hard is that? We're not talking about like, you know, fantasy land here. We're talking about things that are within our control to have a positive impact on. It just, it just, it blows my mind every single time. Every single time. And it, it just, it just, it just, it just, it just, it kills me. Just kills me. You know, he wasn't even supposed to have a gun, you know, or whatever. I don't want to get into that kind of mentality where we're saying, well, it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, it just, if we don't have the, if we just take away the access to the weapons, if we take away the ability for make it easier for people to do mass killing, then we will be better off. We will not be perfect. We will be better off. Those are different things. You know, I have uh, I have several friends, like old, you know, colleagues and people I know through, uh, you know, my my field of study, um, and that's where they that's where they work. You know, and I, I just you know immediately, you know, I'm I'm anybody who will tell you who knows me who will tell you that I'm, I'm really bad at kind of you know keeping in contact with people on a consistent basis. I'm just, I, I'm, I recognize that as a, a severe kind of, you know, personal failing of mine. Um, people I really care about and people that I've had, you know, and I just, whatever, I would get so focused on what's in front of me and my work and my family and things like this. And I just, I'm, I'm bad at it. I, I feel bad about that. But, you know, and since I stopped going, I used to go to these conferences every year um, as part of my field. Um, I don't anymore in part because, my family in part because it got too costly because I would end up spending a lot of money and I wouldn't get reimbursed from that from my university because we have such little support for, uh, for faculty. Um, so I decided, well, screw this. I'm not going to do, I'm going to focus on other things that I think I'm going to find that's going to more impactful like this, right? Like writing like this and writing, you know, this kind of stuff. But anyways, um, so I used to see these folks every year. Um, you know, um, Julie and Malia and, you know, I, I and, um, you know, Thanks. So I, you know, went to their Facebook page to see if they're all right. And they're all right. Um, you know, I first heard about it. Um, but, you know, after something like that, people are not all right. You know, I mean, even if, yes, they might not have been the immediate victim of there, but, it, you know, it's, it's damaging for everybody. So um, I don't know what to say other than that, other than to acknowledge this and kind of like I feel what's going on out there and why we got to keep on, we got to eventually get to the point where we get rid of this stuff. You know, and then underneath all of that, too, as well, is, you know, this this goes right back to where we started this with this, you know, Christian nationalism nonsense is that it's not just the Christian nationalism specifically, but the real, just like, deeply embedded culture of violence um, that, uh, you know, it's bolstered by kind of massive income inequality, by systemic racism, um, by, you know, a lack of any sense of cohesive, you know, civic culture where, we actually are working together toward, you know, a better democracy. Instead, it's like pitting one group against another all the time. Um, the toxic masculinity that is kind of, you know, rewards violence, you know, through, we see this in our, you know, culture industries too as well. So, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a long road ahead of us, certainly. 
Um, but, you know, we can take a really strong step by just kind of banning these damn guns um, and get them out of the hands of people that can do us harm. Pretty simple. Anyways, uh, I'm going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about what's happening once again in the school districts. Yes, again, because that's where all the action is these days. All right, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. We're going to be back right after this quick break. Yep, be there. I'm Rick Smith. And this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1932. That was the day that working people in the United States said goodbye to one of their great heroes. Florence Kelly was born in 1859. Her father, William D. Kelly, was a U.S. Senator. Senator Kelly was an abolitionist and was concerned about the conditions under which working people toiled. He passed that concern on to his daughter. Florence enjoyed the finest education, studying at Cornell University, the University of Zurich, and the Union College of Law. She became a vocal opponent of child labor and sweatshop conditions. She found camaraderie with like-minded women, including Jane Addams and Ellen Gates Starr at Hull House in Chicago. Kelly soon became an important addition to the work of this famed settlement house. Jane Addams' nephew remembered her as the finest rough-and-tumble fighter for the good life of others that Hull House ever knew. She began to visit local factories around Hull House to document unsafe working conditions and the use of child labor. Based on her careful research, the Illinois legislature passed a law banning children under the age of 14 from working in factories. Florence was named the first ever chief factory inspector in the state of Illinois. From Chicago, she moved on to New York, where she helped to found the National Consumer League. The league supported the fight for the eight-hour workday and was a leader in the fight against sweatshops. Florence was also a founding member of the NAACP. She helped to found the National Child Labor Committee, a group dedicated to ending child labor. In response to their work, in 1912, the U.S. Children's Bureau became part of the federal government. It was the only federal agency at the time run by women. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. Hey, everybody, everybody. Welcome back. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, before we get into the school district stuff, I've been, you know, I've been meaning to talk about this for uh, or just kind of ask folks, actually, really. Uh, it's really more of a question for you or kind of uh, uh, something for you to think about. Um, what I've been, I, you know, that little break that we just kind of went through there um, and there's like the transition music and then it goes quiet for a little bit and the transition music, whatever. I, I've been thinking a lot about that. And I, I was thinking that... Um, I would really love the ability to um, highlight some local bands um, and uh, say work with some local bands who uh, would be willing to uh, have kind of a segment like a song or something like this uh, play during some of our breaks. Um, maybe even to use as a some transition pieces. Um, I, I just thought that you know. I, I came across a couple, you know, I, I was whatever. I was in some kind of down a a band camp, um, uh, a band camp kind of wormhole one day. You know, I was just like listen to a bunch of stuff. I said, like, you know, I, you know, I, I wish, I I wish I spent more time kind of you know in the local music scene and um you know because for a long time and 
different places that I've lived and stuff, I would really be connected with that. I know and like, you know, my wife and her family are really kind of music. It's, you know, in terms of local music scene, uh, folks that are doing progressive work, maybe things that, um, you know, not even necessarily like overtly political, although if there are awesome, um, but, you know, just kind of local bands that are kind of with good people that kind of might fit with this program. If you've got any suggestions for, say, local bands that do kind of original music that um, you think might be interested in having some of their work highlighted here, uh, you know, shoot me a message. Um, you can shoot me a message on Twitter at, at RC Press. You can, you can DM me there or shoot me an email at RagingChickenPress at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, just kind of, you know, I'd love to hear your suggestions, right? I've been, I, I'm going to start reaching out to a couple bands. Uh, one of them, which is, um, uh, one of them is, it, it doesn't look they've, they've, they've produced any new music for a few years now, but I really like stuff that they've got. Um, another one that looks like they're, um, uh, they may have just produced some new music, right? So they may have not been together for a bit or kind of moved on or something like that. Um, just stuff that I really like. I mean, I just, I just would love to hear what, what you think, what kind of suggestions you might have. But anyways, um. I'm going to put a call out like that on our Patreon too, as well um, with a way to kind of submit stuff so I can begin to making some contacts with some folks. Um, oh, the other thing I just want to, so here's the other thing I would like your thoughts on, right? And I'm going to put something up again. I'll put some, some questions or want some feedback on our Patreon site too, as well. And again, that will be open for everybody. You can go to our Patreon site and uh, you don't need to be a patron um, in order to kind of respond to some of this stuff. But um, that's where we're going to we're going to put these things. I don't know if people have seen this, but I, I've been having an issue with our old. I was in the process of redoing our old uh, RagingChickenPress.org site. And I had started to make some changes to um, basically streamline the old site to get it ready to become a new one. And then I messed up something. Um, I think I didn't get these ch certain changes done before they switched to a cloud servers um, where I'm having it hosted. And now the site is inaccessible, right? And I can't even get into it, right? So I've got to find some time where I can actually just talk with these folks to try to help me get it back up right. Anyways, so I'm figuring, why am I spending all this time doing this when I just have, I you know, already have basically a site on our Patreon stuff. So I'm going to start putting some of these questions and reach out for the folks there. Because the other thing that I've been toying around with a little bit, and you may have seen me put out this call on uh, Twitter, um, I, I'm, if you know of people that are doing kind of independent media work, right, progressive independent media work in Bucks County or the surrounding counties, like in this area, um, I, I would love con to get in touch with those folks, right? I've already been in touch with a couple now who have, who have DM me and, um, I'm putting out this idea. And the idea is this, right? Um, but it's the, it's the kind of idea that we can't do without the community, right? Um, in part because, uh, um, well, kind of the issue that's always faces kind of independent media or faces progressive organizations is that, you know, we only have so much time in the day to do things, right? <laughs> you know, that's the thing. Um, and I know that, uh, well, let me tell you what I'm talking about first and then we'll, then we'll, then we'll go into it. But um, what I thought would be kind of a cool idea, right, um, is to have a, say, like a Bucks County independent media um, a discord. Right. Um, Bucks County and surrounding district could have a discord that would um, be a place where um, we could, you know, have channels within the discord on the discord server, have channels in the discord server for each um, uh, independent kind of say publication or media site or something like this that's doing kind of progressive work. Um, and then 
have things to kind of, you know, for the community to kind of, um, can, you know, contribute ideas, um, to kind of meet each other, to basically, you know, put, say, our audiences in contact with the Beacons audience and in contact with the Kano show audience with, you know, I mean, um, you know, th that kind of thing, right? To, um, you know, to kind of build out and basically expand that sense of like, look, we're not all out there kind of alone, right? That there's lots of folks that are kind of invested in this stuff and having kind of a certain kind of virtual meeting place where we can kind of cultivate some of that. Um, and I, frankly, to be honest with you, I've already got it set up, right? I've already set up the Discord server and that kind of stuff, but um, I haven't kind of, you know, been promoting it at all or anything yet, in part because the only way that it can work is that if we have um, people out there in our communities, right, in my community, in the Bucks County Beacon community and other kind of media communities that are out there that are willing maybe to kind of serve as, say, moderators on the site to make sure that we don't get a bunch of trolls that are kind of destroying it and that kind of thing um, that will... Um, you know, um, kind of field questions here and there, but just, you know, make sure really it's mostly because most of the time, you know, discord is, is fairly, uh, you know, self-organizing. Um, but there are a few things you want. You want to make sure you want to keep out the, um, the trolls and the hate speech and all that other kind of stuff. But you also want to have, you know, say, for example, if somebody wants to set up a new, a new channel for a particular reason, there might be an approval process that somebody would have to approve. And, um, you know, I, I listened to the show, uh, the dungeon run, obviously that's not a political site, um, but their Discord server is amazing, and that's what they've done. And members of the community have—they didn't even set theirs up, right? The community did it themselves, right? Um, and then have been organizing around it. So it's the official, unofficial, you know, um, Discord of the Dungeon Run, and uh, they just do an amazing job. And it's been kind of expanding, and they've created a kind of really fantastic community. And um, you know, in addition to all the kind of networking and the connections that are happening already out there through uh, around kind of the school board races and stuff like this, it'd be kind of cool to have a, like an online space too as well that, um, you know, wasn't, wasn't Facebook, right? You know, that wasn't there, but that would uh, find ways that we can kind of meet and discuss um, kind of inside the community, so to speak. Um, but anyways, just a thought. If anybody is kind of interested in that kind of thing, any kind of, you know, that would be, uh, think that'd be kind of a cool idea, even if you're not kind of someone who'd want to step up to be a moderator or something like this, but just, just, just love to hear your thoughts on that. Okay. Um, so if you're listening to this as a podcast, right, again, uh, you can head on over to Twitter and message me at, at RC Press. Let me know what you think. Um, we have our own Discord, right? But I, as people know, I haven't been doing a whole lot with it because it's just one other thing. Um, and so, yeah, anyways. So big news this week, uh, again, right, in Central Buck School District, um, the school board um, is basically targeting an additional 60 books to consider banning from its libraries. Um, now, um, like, as you would imagine, that the people that are behind this are, you got it, Moms for Liberty, right? Um, and how are they behind it? Well, they're behind it because um, Central Bucks has um, a, a member uh, one of their, their um, let's see, ba, 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 let me just see if I got this. Oh, I, put, I linked to the wrong thing. That's not good. That's not what I wanted. Anyways, so they have uh, kind of uh, kind of two board members who are either active members or kind of have, a, have been active members of Moms for Liberty Facebook groups and stuff that are basically utilizing um, uh, Moms for Liberty's uh, targeted book list um, in order to challenge books at uh, Central Buck School District. Now, you remember, they opened up this process to um, uh, for book banning a while ago, and now it's like, 
Now, the school board can basically act as we covered on the show before. There's ways for the school board to act unilaterally to actually go ahead and ban these books. It's opened up the doors to uh, the community to um, kind of uh, flag books that they want banned. Right. And so, of course, now the shock troops, right, the people connected to the Moms for Liberty have been going to this Moms for Liberty book banning site, looking for those books, cross checking it with the Central Buck School Board uh, School District to see if they're actually in the libraries and then finding that some of them are, you know, like Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye, for example, um, saying that they're there targeted from from um, banning and they want it banned. And of course, Moms for Liberty on their sites has like set language there that people can just copy and paste it into their challenge things. So they don't even need to actually have read the book. They just know they just want it banned because of what Moms for Liberty says. Um, so this is going to be our, kind of our world. Um, so remember that Central Bucks had already targeted five books for banning. Um, so this is brings the total up to 65 now of books that there is going to be um, considered banning. Um, and it just, you know, this is only going to continue moving forward. Um, the instance that we talked to, again, we talked about this last week, um, and that's why I'm going to have Robin Underwood on the show this coming Monday um, to talk about what's happening in Kutztown. Um, her organization, Coffee, was Kutztown Organized for Education Excellence, um, has been kind of pushing back against the school board. But again, given the, uh, the influx of right-wing money um, into school board races, they, you know, uh, it's, it's so far, it's been a losing battle because the majority is now dominated by these extremists. But anyways, what happened in Kutztown was they were, you know, doing what a lot of middle schools do, which is just an awesome idea, like, you know, one school, one book. Right? So we're all going to read the same book together and we're all going to talk about it. There's going to be events that are going to happen around it. And the book that they decided to read was a book called Two Degrees by this guy, Alan Grants. Right? And Alan Grants is, uh, is a super popular author for kind of young adults, particularly middle school, right? Even kind of before middle school. Like my daughter, right? She loves, she's read tons of his books now. He's got, he produces all these books. He's like a New York Times bestselling author and his books are really good, right? I mean, it's because of him, right? Because of his books that my daughter really got super interested in historical fiction, right? I mean, because he tells good stories about kids and kind of families and things around particular issues. So there's one on kind of um, kind of refugees. There's another one that's kind of dealing with the Holocaust. You know, there's another one dealing with, you know, figure your issues. So you're taking all these kind of like, you know, kind of real, real issues in the world, right? And kind of seeing it through the lens of these multiple characters that are coming at it from all these different directions and perspectives, right? Um, and using kind of like that historical research as kind of like the backdrop for it, right? And so she loves this book. She's like, I mean, she plows through them, right? And I know lots of other kids do the same thing. I've talked to other parents who are like, oh my God, my kid loves those things too as well. So Two Degrees, that was that's his latest book. It was just published this past October. And the kind of issue around which the story takes place is climate change, right? It's looking in you know, the way our world looks now, we have increasing amounts of, of wildfires, you have kind of flooding that's happening, you have more kind of significant storms that are happening, all this kind of stuff. You know, so what happens when you start getting that, you know, hit that two degrees um, limit, right? Two degrees of warming, that is, you know, we're told this is going to be really, really significant, this is really bad. So that's the, you know, the way the story takes place. And again, it's this kind of critical engagement, it's just a guy, it's a rave reviews, kids love this book. So that's what Kutztown University, or not, I'm sorry, Kutztown Area School District was going to read in this middle school as part of this one book, one school, or one school, one book, however it goes. But because of these fanatics, because of these extremists, right, um, one who's on the board and one and several in the community that are kind of like taking their cues from who knows which right-wing website um, 
have targeted this and said, no, we can't do this because it doesn't show both sides, right? Both sides, meaning the climate scientists, the climate science, what we know about climate change, you know, the, the thing that everybody in the world accepts and the lunatic, like, you know, on the fringe kind of climate deniers, right? So because you're not it's featuring the climate deniers too as well, then therefore we shouldn't be reading this and kids shouldn't be like scared or exposed to all this stuff. It's the same argument they're using when it's talking about books that deal with sexuality issues, right? Same thing, I'm basically just moving it to climate change now. So the principal of the school, or the, the, the I'm sorry, the uh, superintendent of the school district caved to the pressure from these parents and got rid of the, um, got rid of the program. They're no longer gonna be reading that, right? So they have to send, and there's the thing, all these kids are going to get a book. They're going to get that book. But no, guess what? No, they got to send all the books back. They get to keep 50 of them because they had already opened them up and they've been. But the rest of them got sent back to the publisher. I know these kids are not. So now they say, well, if the kid wants to read it, they can read it. That defeats the whole purpose of doing it together as a community. It's just like, whatever. It's crazy. It's crazy. And to add insult to injury... Right, Alan Grants is going to be at Kutztown University in April, April 15th, I think, for the Kutztown University uh, Children's Literature Conference, right? And they have that every year. They always bring in great children's authors and things like this. He is going to be at the um, at Kutztown University um, as one of the keynote speakers, right? And that was an opportunity for these kids, right, who are in the public school in Kutztown, right, to link up with an event that's happening at the university and kind of like you know, best of both worlds. Like, not only did we read this guy's book, but we might even have the opportunity to meet him, right? How great would that be? Like, that's what, I mean, in my mind, this was like the perfect, like, this is like the perfect kind of educational model where you're working with, you know, the community around, getting people involved. It was just a, just a great event. And then now it's gone because of the same thing that's been happening in places like Central Bucks. Right. The one th the big distinction here now is like, instead of it being only books that are dealing with LGBTQ issues, now we're seeing kind of climate books being targeted as well. Right. I hate to say I saw this coming, but I said, you know, I said this to I was talking about this like several months ago. I said, you watch once they're successful, once people break down and allow them to do this, they're going to come after climate science. They're going to come after all the other things that we're doing and they're going to ban all that stuff, too, as well. And here we go. I guess this is good news that there was a 52 school board directors from 25 different Pennsylvania school districts basically sent a letter out um, here. Wait, let me get it for a second. I forgot to pick it up, I think, right? Did I? Da, da, da. Oh, what do I do with that? I had a nice little. Uh, oh, and I also forgot to include something else in my, my notes today. today. Um, so this is from, uh, this is an open letter to Pennsylvania families and students, and it is signed by 52 members, uh, like I said, school board directors, and that ranges from Wissahickon School District to Allentown School District to Bethel Park School District, Bethlehem, Downingtown, uh, even someone from Bucks, can you believe it? Right, um, yeah, uh, Andrea, let's see, uh, Norristown School District, Perky Omen School District, uh, Norristown, Springford, you know, you get the idea from kind of all over uh, Pennsylvania, um, the school board directors um, kind of signing this and basically condemning what's happening at Central Bucks. And I'll read you just a little bit of their letter. 
is an open letter to Pennsylvania families and students. School boards have a unique role in our society, tasked with the oversight and governance of public school systems that welcomes all students and prepares them to succeed in their educational careers and in their lives. A crucial part of this mission is fostering an inclusive, tolerant environment free from discrimination, bias, or prejudice. This is particularly true for some of our most vulnerable populations of students. Those facing any number of different personal challenges are working to overcome traditional societal barriers. We, the undersigned, are elected school board directors who denounce intolerance and discrimination by school boards. As school board directors, we are tasked with the creation of an environment that fosters learning for all students and the advancement of policies that achieve this goal through tolerance, inclusion, and equity. It is our job to ensure that when students graduate from any public school in Pennsylvania, they are prepared to enter the workforce with resilience, empathy, and a strong sense of self. Then they move on to what's happening at Central Bucks. School boards and individual school board directors should be working to help support these populations, not attack them, or foster intolerance toward them, or target them for political purposes. Unfortunately, that is exactly what a majority of the Central Bucks School, um, school District School Board has recently done in adopting a policy that attacks LGBTQI plus students and their allies and directly contradicts our mission and purposes as stewards of the public, system, uh, public education systems. Policy 321, quote, on partisan political or social policy advocacy activities, unquote, passed by a vote of six to three by the Central Buck School Board of School Directors on January 10th, 2023, is a direct attack on students, teachers, and community members and contradicts the purpose, mission, and goals that all school boards and school board directors should seek to advance. On its surface, the policy is clearly targeted to harm LGBTQI plus students and community members with the immediate ban of pride flags hung in classrooms, but it has already harmed other historically marginalized groups. Just last month, the world saw the effects of this harmful policy at play in real time, with a school librarian forced to remove a poster with a quote from a Holocaust survivor and award-winning novelist Elie Wiesel, or face serious, uh, serious consequences, only after board... Only after broad public outcry, the district restored the historic quote, but the damage to students, teachers, and the community had already been done. The broad, unclear, and downright cruel interpretation of this policy is inflicting direct harm to members of our communities, our friends, our neighbors, our teachers, and our children. And they call for repeal of the policy. So, bravo. Um, we need more of that. We need more of that. Um, we need more of that. The other thing I didn't mention, and I'm sorry, I, I can't believe I didn't mention this um, and put this in the show notes, rather. Um, but, you know, we've been also following here. I've been looking at uh, and um, we haven't talked a ton about it on the show yet. Um, and in part because I was looking to try to get somebody on the show and so whatever. Get up here. But uh, Temple University Graduate Students Association is on strike. Right. Um, they have been on strike um, uh, about a week now. Um, a little bit more. But. Here's what's at issue in this strike, right? There, here's their demands, right? Um, one, a living wage, right? The current average pay for graduate employees is $19,500 a year. Our proposed base wage of $32,800 a year is designed to bring graduate employees pay in line with the living cost of Philadelphia based upon the MIT living wage calculator as of January 2021 when the negotiations began. Other universities in the area like Penn have already acknowledged this need, raising their graduate pay to $38,000. Right? So one, living wage, health care for dependents and families, 
right? The cost of adding um, dependents to graduate employees' healthcare um, plans are prohibitively expensive. The cost of adding just one dependent to a plan for a year is almost a third of the total annual salary for graduate employees. They want that added to their health insurance. Longer parental and bereavement leave, right? Despite graduate school being a, a time of life when many people want to start families and Temple marketing itself as an institution of accessibility, Temple's policies make this impossible, right? They want currently, they, they only have five days of parental leave, right? You don't, beyond that, then that's it. And they want better working conditions. It is one of the most basic rights of the union to negotiate over the terms of our workload, yet the administration refuses to engage at all with our proposals um, that would help address widespread overwork and mismanagement of contracts and work assignments. Our working conditions are our students' learning conditions, and when our conditions are substandard, our students suffer. Right? Um, you can check out, you can go to TUGSA, that's T-U-G-S-A dot org slash strike, and uh, you get information about how to join the picket line, how to donate to their strike fund. You can go to tugsa.betterworld.org slash campaigns to TUGSA hyphen strike fund, or just kind of, I'll put that in the show notes. You'll find all this information at tugsa.org slash strike. They have a petition that you can sign there. There's an undergraduate, um, there's an undergraduate petition that's calling for no scab classes that uh, undergraduates have recently joined the um, the strike by refusing to cross picket lines, um, by refusing to go to class, by refusing to go to Oak School and kind of increasingly putting pressure upon the university, which is phenomenal. And then they have uh, a broad petition that's for everybody to sign. Um, you can email the Temple administration and spread the word to others. That's what we're trying to do right here today. Um, uh, I'm gonna, still going to see if I can find a way to kind of uh, squeeze in a, um, somebody from, uh, from Tugsa to talk about this. Um, uh, hopefully their strike is going to be resolved soon and they're going to get what they're asking for. Um, the, uh, recently, there's recent reporting that just came out that said that, um, where is it from? Uh, maybe I don't have that one here, but I think it was, it it was in the, uh, Billy Penn, I think, might have had a piece on it. There was a, an interview with some of the folks from Tugsa, or it might have been from, um, from Philadelphia Inquirer. There was an article about it where um, the administration uh, refuses to even meet to negotiate with um, the Tugsa organizers or Tugsa negotiators until they reduce their ask, right? So instead of actually going to the table to negotiate, um, the Temple University uh, administration is basically deciding that, okay, no, we're going to negotiate by saying we're going to refuse to even talk to you, refuse to even negotiate unless you already cut what your ask is, right, which is not the way you bargain in good faith. So um, this is setting up for a long-term strike. Um, I should just, <laughs> before I, uh, um, I did this once, like years ago, uh, I was talking about it. It was going into like a third day uh, of a strike. And um, then as I was talking about it, uh, unbeknownst to me, um, they had settled the strike. So I just want to make sure that's what it is. Um, <clears throat> no. Um, there's, there's a great story in uh, CNN, actually. CNN actually um, put out this. It's, a, it's an opinion piece. Um, this is uh, Heather Ann Thompson uh, writing for CNN. Basically puts the Tugsa strike into, um, into context. Right, basically looking at um, uh, things. I'll give you an example. She, uh, in her piece, she basically sets up, you know, a long history of uh, the abuse of workers. Um, goes through the Homestead strike. Um, talks about what happened in Ludlow and the coal mines in Ludlow in Colorado, and then basically say, well, look, this is what we're talking about. We're seeing a similar dynamic happen here at Temple. And this is what she says, the harms of the past are echoing loudly in Temple University's recent decision to undercut the efforts of its graduate students to secure better wages and health care by suddenly demanding full payment for their tuition and then threatening that not paying would result in them being barred from taking classes to complete their degree. 
right? This is overt anti-worker um, intimidation, right? The workers have been on strike since January 31st, right? In response, oh God, I was like, it's 31st already. God, I guess it is like over two weeks. Um, uh, in response, the university stopped paying the strikers, deactivated their healthcare accounts on February 8th, notified them that they are no longer entitled to tuition remission and had until March 9th to pay, right? This is that kind of intimidation. This is why this strike is so important, right? The Tuxa workers strike, Tuxa, the uh, Temple University graduate student employees, um, they are um, kind of on strike and they're being attacked in kind of a really overt anti-union campaign. Um, so Temple, um, what's also interesting about the Temple situation, Temple of course is a state related institution. They are not, a pri they are not strictly private, but they are not a public university. Um, so there's opportunities here for even elected officials to put pressure upon Temple, um, basically because they get money from um, the state and if they're, the you know, the university is using anti-union and anti-worker um, policies uh, on, and actions, then they should kind of have their, their funding threatened, like from the state. That's why it was a good move this week where we saw elected officials started showing up on the strike lines um, in Philadelphia, um, joining those strike lines with those workers. If you are in Philadelphia or you're in the area, you're down there, um, head on over to those strike lines and let them know, let them know you that we're talking about it up here. Let them know that you heard about this at Raging Chicken. Um, let them know that you're kind of there for them. Let them know that you are kind of on the line with them. Um, that'd be great. If you can shoot a letter to the uh, university administration or you can kind of contribute to their strike fund, please do this. Um, again, you can go to Tugsa, that's T-U-G-S-A, Tugsa.org slash strike with all the information about how to kind of help support these workers um, there. Because this is a perfect example of where these, uh, you know, kind of, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, injury to one is an injury to all. And if we allow this injury to kind of continue, if this is something that goes on, again, that's going to have ramifications for the way that workers are treated in this state um, beyond Temple University, but across the board. So um, good on those folks um, there. I want to make sure I kind of got that in since I have it in um, my lead up notes, which is I'm kicking myself for. Um, so the, the other thing I just wanted to mention before we kind of uh, start to bring it to a close today is that the... Um, uh, of course, you know, we have saw John Fetterman was, uh, was involved, was, you know, voluntary check, voluntarily checked himself in the Walter Lee Medical Center uh, for treatment for clinical depression. Um, and as you know, we're all finding out, um, if you, we, we didn't know already that, you know, um, clinical depression, depression is common among, uh, stroke survivors. Um, and, you know, some of that and some of what I've been reading about it, at least is saying, you know, some of that may be kind of say biochemical, um, as a result, direct result of the stroke, but some of it is just like the f absolute frustration, lack of able communication, the, um, you know, the, just that the gap between what you were before the, before the stroke and then where the stroke has left you and not being able to get back to who you know you are, right? <laughs> you know, um, quickly, and I shouldn't even say not who you know you are, but to get back to kind of what you would consider your kind of normal functioning, right? Um, and of course, as we know that, you know, it's never quite, you know, you, you, you kind of find your way back in a different pathway, right? You end up in, as in a, a change person, not necessarily change, like, you know, you're kind of a completely different person, but you know, that's a struggle that will kind of, um, that will stay with you. So, um, and like I said, it, you know, early on at the top of the show that, you know, wish him obviously, um, kind of all the best and he and his family, um, but also really appreciate um, their willingness to be kind of transparent about what's going on and to really 
make this an opportunity for all of us to understand really the complexity and the impact um, that strokes can have on an individual and a family. Um, you know, I could see other politicians or, you know, figures, whatever, try to, you know, hide um, the impacts of, um, you know, something like a stroke or some you know, other kind of, say, disability or something like this, um, and to try to pretend to be something that, you know, to try to kind of, you know, put on a good show, right, because you're supposed to be like this. But instead, Fetterman has really has taken a different route um, by using, you know, we've talked about this in the show before, he's, you know, openly talked about the fact that he uses this, has been using this opportunity to really kind of even become more empathetic, right, with the struggles that people are going through, right? Um, and, you know, wanting to basically be more connected to those folks that are that are struggling and wanting to kind of make his struggle with, uh, you know, this kind of recovery and surviving a stroke um, to have that as an opportunity where, you know, other people can connect with and their stories are kind of uh, amplified. So good on Fetterman for All right, everybody, this is going to about do it for me for today. Um, uh, hey, uh, Emily, happy Friday. Yeah, coming in late. Yeah, I started late today, Emily, so no worries. <laughs> um, I have, uh, uh, like I said, I apologize that I started so late today, um, but it's just, you know, kids home from school and had an opportunity to sleep in a little bit, and I took that opportunity, uh, even though that was not my intention when I went to bed last night. <laughs> so here we go. Anyways, everybody, uh, kind of enjoy this day. It looks like, uh, at least in my neck of the woods, it looks like the rain has been clearing out. And, uh, yes, it is still, what, like a uh, a balmy, what, it's going to be a, what's a balmy, what is it now? Uh, 52 degrees here on this uh, February 17th. Uh, we're looking for uh, just, you know, whatever, I should start doing this every week. We're looking for a high today of uh, 59 degrees, yep. And uh, the rain's going to be coming to a stop pretty soon. Yep. Tomorrow looks like we're going to get a little bit of cold again, but it's, uh, you know, it's not going to get below like 44. So, um, yep, our climate future is here. That's for sure. All right, everybody, I wish you an awesome weekend. I hope you have a, um, a great opportunity to do something nice this weekend. Um, I know I'm going to be doing some cleaning. Um, I, if I can, I'm going to be doing some yard work. Um, and... Uh, yeah, a bunch of other fun stuff. So anyways, uh, wish you all well. Thank you all for your always your continued support. Thank you for kind of joining in the, on the show. And uh, as always, let me know what you think. Uh, kind of got suggestions, got suggestions for upcoming guests and so on. Please, uh, you know, please let me know. And uh, just a reminder that this uh, Monday that we're going to have Robin Underwood on the show, talk about what's happening in the Kutztown area school district um, with a um, uh kind of around that that book, Two Degrees, uh, by Alan Grant. Um, and then in two weeks, we're going to have uh, Patricia Roberts-Miller on talking about her book, Demagoguery and Democracy. Um, for now, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, hope you all had a great day. Looking forward to a good weekend. I'm going to sleep in tomorrow, too, I think. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so tired this week. Anyways, take care, all. Have a good one. See ya! I guess I'll fly away now